All right. Good evening. Good to see you guys here this evening. And I mean that. I look around the room and I, I say thank you to every single one of you that's come out on a Sunday evening, on a beautiful Sunday evening, when uh, March Madness is taking place. And you guys, uh, maybe some of y'all looking down at your phone, I don't know. Uh, but thank you for being here tonight and for uh, coming and singing together, fellowshipping and opening the Word of God together. Uh, it means the world to me that you guys would show up tonight. So if you have your Bibles, I'm going to give you what you want. You want a sermon. You want to know that what the Bible says. So I'm going to give you exactly what you want tonight. First uh, Timothy chapter five, and tonight we're going to be back in First Timothy. We're going to look, looking at it over the last six, seven months. God's blueprint for the church, and that, that's what this is. God has given us how He wants the church to be run. If you want to set your church in order, you need to go to First Timothy. You need to see how God wants it run. You need to build your church by the book. And I believe if we, if we build our church by the book, the way God wants us to, he'll bless that. And if you don't, I believe that, that God will curse that, that he, he will not bless that. So we've been aiming at building the church by God's blueprint, by the book. And tonight, if you want to set your pastor straight, uh, it's all over First Timothy. But in particular, here tonight in chapter 5, he, he sets the pastors in order. And I know you guys may not get too excited about this. I titled the sermon, Setting the Pastor Straight. Uh, I know one person who is really excited about setting the pastor straight, and that's my wife. She, <laughs> she's, she's been wanting to hear this sermon for a long time. So setting the pastor straight, this, this passage, and I think several of these that we've studied so far has been aimed at me, bullseye on me, and that's okay. I think if you set the pastor right, as goes the pastor, so goes the church. So we're going to look at that tonight, setting the pastor straight. Let's stand together. I want to read verses 17 to, to 25. I want to look at the whole section. Last time we um, met, we looked at verses 17 and 18. I won't talk about that tonight, but I want to get the entire section in tonight. Looking at verses 17 to 25, setting the pastor straight. Verse 17, let the elders, and that's where you get the, it's the pastors, elders, setting the elders straight. Let the elders that rule well be counted worthy of double honor especially they who labor in the word and doctrine. For the scripture saith, Thou shalt not muzzle the ox that treadeth out the corn, and the laborer is worthy of his reward. Against an elder, see, it continues the same thing. Against an elder, receive not an accusation, but before two or three witnesses. Them that sin, rebuke before all, that others may fear. I charge thee before God and the Lord Jesus Christ and the elect angels, that thou observe these things without preferring one before another, doing nothing by partiality. Lay hands suddenly on no man, neither be partaker of other men's sins. Keep thyself pure. Drink no longer water, but use a little wine for thy stomach's sake and for thine often infirmities. Some men's sins are open beforehand, going before to judgment, and some men they follow after. Likewise also the good works of some are manifest beforehand, and they that are otherwise cannot be hid. So we'll stop there and look tonight at setting the pastor straight. This is a great passage. There's more here than just pastor stuff. I think we'll learn a lot here. And I think, again, if you'll set your pastor straight, if you'll get that right, everything else in the church will fall along. So we got to set the pastor right first. Let's pray together and we'll study these verses. Father, I pray, this has been convicting for me. I pray that you would um, help me to set myself right. I know there's passages, verses here that tells the church how to set the pastor right when he's wrong. But I, I pray, God, that you would convict me where I'm wrong where I'm not what I need to be, where I'm not meeting the responsibilities, and I pray that you'd correct me. 
And help me, God, to be the leader, the elder, the pastor that you've called me to be. I believe wholeheartedly that as goes the pastor, so goes the church. And God, I know that if, if I'm doing things right, you'll bless it. And if I'm doing things wrong, you won't. So God, there's a lot of responsibility that is on my shoulders. And as we talked about this morning, I also know my weakness that I cannot carry that load. So God, I need you to help me every single day. And I thank you for pastors like this that have set me straight and kept me straight. And I pray, God, that you'd use this tonight to teach us um, not only what a pastor needs to be, but how the church should respond to the pastor. I think this is a great passage, and we need to hear it. And so, God, help us. And we ask and pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You guys can be seated. I was asked last week in a Q&A, if you guys watched that or if you was here, uh, one of the questions that I was asked was, what is the biggest problem facing the church today? And I answered that to the best of my ability in that moment, and I kind of thought about it a little bit more this week, and I think my answer would remain the same, uh, but there are so many problems facing the church today, and I, I, in my mind as I was thinking about, did I answer that question correctly? I went through several things that the church is facing today, and, and in some ways facing things that the church has never faced before. Uh, and I went through the list of, did I answer that right? And I'm, I'm going through in my mind all the things that the church is facing, I think, uh, just let me give you a few of the answers that I could have, could have gave last week. I could have said pragmatism. And if you don't know what that is, it's doing what is, what, what works instead of doing what's right. And I believe that's a problem facing the church today, that you got a lot of pastors who are leading the church in almost a business-like model where they're trying to do their best to, to grow the church. And whatever they can do to grow the church, they do it. If it works, they do it. That's called pragmatism. And that is eating up the church. Uh, it's a church that's not dependent upon what the Bible says. It's dependent upon what's popular and what's new and what works, and that is dangerous for the church. I think that's a big problem in the church today. I think politics is a huge problem in the church today. Uh, I think that's on both sides of the aisle. You've got the social justice uh, uh, liberalism that's creeping in the church on one hand, and you've got the, the right wing that's, uh, that's creeping in on the other, where they're becoming way too focused on political issues and not enough on Christ and Him crucified. And any time we take our, our, our eyes off the prize, off, the, off of Christ, and we're not turning our eyes to Jesus, the church is in big trouble. I think also there's a, a great biblical ignorance in the church today. That, that I, I, they, they say, and I've read this, and, and it's been said by many, many pastors, that biblical ignorance is at an all-time high in the church today. That people have, Christians in the pews have no idea what they believe. They have no idea what the Bible teaches. That, that There's even some um, polls that say that there's a lot of Christians today that don't even know if they believe in the resurrection or not. I would say they're not Christians if they don't believe in the resurrection, but uh, the point remains the same. There's a, a great amount of biblical ignorance in the church today, and that is a huge problem. Amen. Let me give you another one. I just I was going through my mind of all the problems facing the church. Uh, I think there's a the church has become worldly. There's an impurity amongst the church where we're doing everything we can to become like the world to reach the world. And never has the church been more worldly, carnal than it is today. Watch any church on live stream on Facebook, watch them on TV, listen on the radio, and a lot of the, the gimmicks that they use is so worldly, so fleshly, so carnal, that it, it's, they're so much like the world, there's no difference anymore. And that's dangerous for the church. And I could go on and on and on. All these problems that are facing the church, and, and I could have said those last week in the, in the Q&A, but I think my answer remains the same. All these problems and every other problem that I could name 
would be fixed if you just get the leadership right. I think that's the main problem facing the church today is you've got leaders who are bringing in the pragmatism, who are doing what's working instead of doing what's right. They're bringing in the politics. They're bringing in, they're not teaching the Bible, so the church is ignorant. They're, they're, they're doing all these things, and it all falls back to a problem behind the pulpit. And, and it's a leadership problem. And I think we've got a, a crisis there. I think we've got to fix what's behind the pulpit before we can start trying to fix what's in the pew. We've got a crisis today behind the pulpit where there are men who are unsaved, unqualified, unbiblical, standing behind the pulpit. It's the blind leading the blind. So that's our problem. And I think that's exactly what Paul is saying in 1 Timothy. There's a lot of problems here that he's dealt with. And we went one by one by one through each and every problem that this church is facing. But mixed throughout every problem, Paul always comes back to leadership. I can show you this. Just on pastor, on leadership. Chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, leadership. Chapter 1, verse 20, leadership. Talking about pastors. Chapter 2, verses 9 through 15, leadership. There was women trying to lead in the church. Chapter 3, verses 1 through 7, biblical qualifications of a pastor. Chapter 4, the entirety of chapter 4 aimed at pastors. Chapter 5, this last section, 17 through 25, pastors. I think Paul's telling Timothy the same exact thing that I'm telling you tonight. There's a lot of problems facing the church and they can all be fixed if you get the pastors and set them straight. So that's what we're going to do tonight. These are practical lessons on leadership. Set the pastor right, you'll set the church right. So we're going to look at that and, and I, I'll go ahead and look at verses 17 through 18. We call that paying the pastor. Honor those who, who lead well. We won't look at that one. So the first point I want to give you tonight in this setting the pastor straight isn't paying the pastor, but now it's protecting the pastor. You've got to protect the pastor, it says in verse 19. Let's work our way through this. Verses 17 and 18 is paying the pastor. Verses 19 and through 21 would be protecting him. You've got to protect the pastor. It says in verse 19, against an elder, and this word elder is, again, pastor, this against an elder, receive not an accusation. That, that's a word of caution. He's saying, uh, don't receive an accusation or a, a, a charge of wrongdoing. Don't receive an allegation where somebody would come and, and point their finger at the pastor and say he's doing something wrong. Don't receive that. And that receive, don't receive that would be, don't listen to it. If somebody comes to you with an accusation or an allegation or a charge against the pastor, they come to you and they say, listen, I, I got something on, on the pastor. He says, here, don't listen to it. Don't entertain it. Don't consider it. Don't investigate it. Turn a deaf ear to it. Put your fingers in your ear like my kids would and do la, 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 la. I'm not listening to that. Amen. That's what he says here. Ignore it. Turn a deaf ear to it. Don't listen to allegations against the pastor. And this is scary. It's a scary reality because there will be allegations and accusations made against the pastor. There always will be. He's always going to be in the hot seat. If the devil can't get the pastor to sin, he'll make it look like the pastor's in sin. He won't ruin the pastor. He'll just ruin the pastor's reputation. He won't ruin his character. He'll just make everybody else think his character's ruined by accusation. One accusation, whether it's true or not, can ruin a man. So he says here, don't listen to the accusations. There's always going to be somebody after the pastor. 
There's always going to be somebody, and, and you just, it just may surprise you, but there's always going to be somebody out there who doesn't like the pastor. I mean, even if he's the most likable guy in the world, he's made somebody mad by something that he said or something that he's done, and they're ready at, at, a, at a drop of a hat to accuse him of something. They're not going to like him either personally, and I've seen that. Again, I don't understand it. I think I'm incredibly likable. But there's going to be people out there, and there has been people out there, who don't like me personally. There's still to this day people that will turn a turn their face when they see me in Food City. They just don't like me, and, and that happens. So they don't like him personally, or they don't like him biblically in what he teaches. That's more likely. He says something that steps on their toes, makes them mad. And to retaliate, they'll accuse him of something. It's a reality. They'll slander, they'll accuse, they'll make allegations. I read a quote this week that said, Every fool has an arrow to shoot at a faithful pastor. John Calvin said this, Even if the pastor performs his duty perfectly, so as not to commit any error at all, he will never escape a thousand accusations. So anticipate hateful, jealous accusations aimed at destroying the character of a pastor. Expected. I need to expect that. And you need to expect to hear those things about me. And he says here, when you, when you get that, don't you dare listen to it. That's what it says. I mean, he says that don't, against an elder, receive not an accusation. Don't receive it. Don't, don't take it. And this is scarier today than I think it's ever been. Because an accusation in those days, when somebody said something about Timothy, it would have to, I mean, it would take weeks to get a letter across the city. I mean, one here and then the next one there. And it'll still spread, but it's just a whole lot slower today when all we have to do now is type it in on Facebook, hit post, and everybody in the world sees it. So don't receive it. Nothing anonymous. I've gotten anonymous accusations here. I told you, we used to have a... Uh, the, the little box back there where you could, you could uh, drop in your, your thoughts anonymously in a, in a letter. And I used to open those things up and they'd be anonymous accusations and allegations and, and, and tips on how they think the church should be done. And if there's no name on it, I would take it and, and just rip it up and throw it away. Amen. We don't receive anything anonymously. We don't receive anything online from anybody untrustworthy. Nothing from just one person. Nothing from haters. Nothing from trolls. You do not receive any accusations against an elder. And I'll say this, be very careful for those who are accusing the brethren. Never more are you like Satan than when you're accusing the brethren. What was it, uh, David? said, touch not my anointed. I know I'm not the king. But in verse 17, it says you better honor, double honor, the man who God puts as a pastor. Amen. And I think it's Zechariah chapter 2 that says, when you are slandering or talking about God's man, it's as if you're poking God in the eye. So be very careful if you're going to accuse, make an allegation against the pastor. You say, well, is the pastor above any accusation? What if he does wrong? Are we still just to sit back and let him do whatever he wants to do? No, watch this. There is a way to correct the pastor. Look at verse 19. So against an elder, because if I stop there, you guys would sit there and say, he can do whatever he wants to do. Nobody can say a word about him. And a lot of pastors might stop right there. But now he says, but what if he really is wrong? What if it's not an accusation, but what if it's true? Against an elder, receive not an accusation. But if you have two or three witnesses, that's how things are done. If you have two or three, this is how you correct. If there's two or three, this is church discipline. 
This is what Matthew 18, when Jesus said, would you bring two or three, uh, when two or three are gathered in his name, he's there with them in church discipline. So this is the same thing, that the pastor is not above church discipline. If everybody in the pew can be church disciplined, then, then so can the pastor if he does something wrong. So if you've got two or three credible witnesses that come to you and say, he's done this, this, or this, then you listen to it. You investigate it. You check it out. You see if there's anything to this accusation. If it's just one hater, troll, anonymous, online person, untrustworthy, you just blow it off, it's no big deal. I'm not listening to that. But if two or three reliable, trustworthy people bring it to your attention, then listen to it. Entertain it. Investigate it. And if it's true, watch this. So it's, but before two or three witnesses, them that sin. If it's true, if it's a sin, and I'm not talking about a little sin. If somebody catches me speeding and they're like, we're going to bring that before the church. He was going 60 and a 55. No, if it's a big deal, he's doing something that he shouldn't be doing. And this is church discipline. You need to do this. This is hard for me to get up here and say. If, if you catch me doing something I shouldn't be doing, this should keep me in fear and trembling. That two or three would find me doing something I shouldn't be doing and they're going to bring it before the church. That's discipline. We need discipline in the church. We need discipline on pastors. If the church would keep the pastor straight, it would solve a lot of problems in the church today. We need it with the members. You need it with the pastor. You need to discipline your children. There's a lot of kids out there. You know what would be good for them? A little discipline. You need it even with your law enforcement. We don't need to defund the police. The police need to, to do their job. If you're not disciplining people, whether it's the church, the pastor, your kids, or everybody in society by the police, then everything, everybody's going to do whatever they want to do, and it causes chaos in the home, in the country, and in the church. Discipline is a good thing. So he says, if it's true, if he sins, here's what you do. You rebuke him. <laughs> You expose it before everybody. Yeah, yeah, you give him a chance to go two or three before him and say, you've done this. But if it's a big deal, you don't keep it private. If he's stealing money. You don't just say, okay, you confessed it. It's okay, keep going. You bring that man up before the church and you expose it before every single person. There's too much sweeping under the rug in the church today. I say it's more of a Problem with the church when they find out they've hidden things than then if they bring it up and expose it before all. Expose it. Let it be known. See, this is hard for me to say. If I do anything wrong, allegations that are true, bring it up before the church and let everybody know about it. There's a lot of pastors who, who commit sin, adultery, money, whatever it is, and the church just says, oh, let's let them save face, and we'll just say they quit, and they move on to another church and do the same thing in that church, ruining church after church after church. No, expose it before all. Let it be known. It says right there, rebuke before all. There's some sins that are disqualifying that you're going to bring it up and say he's done this and he's no longer qualified to be the pastor of this church or any other church. Yes, they can be forgiven. Yes, they can be restored. But no, they no longer are blameless when it comes to their qualifications. Make it open. No hush-hush, no hiding. And he says, do that. Look what it says. So others may fear. Let me tell you this, 
You discipline a pastor and you bring him up and expose him before every single person in the church, don't think for a second that it's not going to get people in the pews starting to shake. Don't think for a second that the associate pastor or the other elders are going to sit there and say, oh, we can get away with these things. You discipline one and everybody else is set straight. When you know discipline is going to take place in your church, everybody starts walking a little bit more gingerly. It's like whipping my kids. Sometimes I just whip a kid so everybody else will get scared. (laughs) Oh no, he whipped Gracie, he'll whip everybody. (laughs) Just take Gracie in her room and pretend, you know, slap my hand. She walks out with tears in her eyes. See guys? (laughs) I've never done that, Zaya. But that's what it's saying here. If you if you'll do that to the pastor, then everybody else will be like, oh no, this church really does take sin seriously. And I know that some churches, I know the temptation here is to say, we love that guy. We don't want to expose him to scandal. We don't want to expose his kids to this. I mean, his kids could be sitting in the pews and we're bringing him up here and saying, adultery, uh, embezzlement. He's doing these things that are wrong and it's disqualifying. And and he's no longer qualified to be the pastor. What's, what's the community going to think? The reputation of the church is going to be bad. Let's just cover it up. And that's why verse 21 is here. I get that. Let's just keep it in house. Let's just keep it in the office. But just to make sure, he says, I charge thee before the tribunal in heaven. Do you see what he brings in here? This isn't before the deacon board. This isn't before the other elders. I charge thee before God and the Lord Jesus Christ and the elect angels. I charge thee under the watchful eye of heaven. That you observe these things. That you do what I just told you to do. And we know that Timothy, in this church, there was false teachers. That there was women who were preaching. That there was all kinds of of leaders in this church that needed to be church disciplined. Exposed, brought before all. And Timothy, Timothy is sitting there thinking, I can't do that. He says, I charge you before God, the Lord Jesus Christ, and the elect angels. You do exactly what I just told you to do. And you do it. Watch how he says to do it. I like this. Do it without preference and without partiality. Don't you dare do it to one and not do it to another. Don't you dare discipline somebody in the church without disciplining the pastor. Don't you dare Overlook somebody. You're going to discipline the pastor. You're going to discipline the members. Don't let anybody buy with it. I don't even care if they're your family. No partiality. No preference. There's too many good old boy clubs in the church that lets somebody get away because he's a family member or he's a friend or he gives money or or some kind of preference. We don't let that happen. You discipline everybody the exact same way. No partiality, no preference at all. You know why? Because God is extremely concerned about the purity of His church. And if the pastor is impure, the whole church will be impure. There's a reason Jesus walks through the seven churches in Asia 
in Revelation 2 and 3 correcting them. And talking to the pastors. Correct this, correct this. Because he is more concerned about the church's purity than he is the church's popularity. So much so. Watch this. You don't have to turn there. You say, how concerned is God about the purity of his people? Get this. I I found these verses this week and I said, I have to read them. I don't even know if they go go here or not, but you, you just listen. Deuteronomy 13 says, if thy brother, this is without partiality, if thy brother, the son of thy mother, or thy son, or thy daughter, or the wife of thy bosom, or thy friend, which is as thine own soul. You may go that list again. This is Deuteronomy 13. If thy brother, the son of my mother, or your son, or your daughter, or your wife, or your friend, which is like your own soul, entice these secretly, saying, hey, hey, let us go and serve other gods, which thou hast known, thou nor hast not known, thou or thy fathers, namely the, the gods of the people which are around about you. If they start asking you to do that, it says, nine to thee or far off from thee, from one end of the earth or even to the other end of the earth, thou shalt not consent unto him, nor hearken unto him. Neither shall thine eye pity him. Neither shalt thou spare. Neither shalt thou conceal him. Don't hide him. But thou shalt surely kill him. You say, kill him? Who's the him? Brother, son, Daughter, wife, friend. And then it goes on to say, Thy hand shall be the first one to put him to death. And afterwards, the hand of all the people. And thou shalt stone him with stones that he die. Because he has sought to thrust thrust thee away from the Lord thy God, which brought thee out of the land of Egypt. And all Israel shall hear, and all Israel shall fear. And they shall do no more such any wickedness among you. You take one out that tries to do that and everybody else is going to be scared to death to do that. That's the same exact thing he's saying here, but it's not kill, it's discipline. If you'll discipline the pastor, if you'll discipline somebody who's your, your son or your daughter or your, or your wife, no partiality, no preference at all, and you're the first one to accuse them when they do something wrong, I'm going to bring that out before the church, then everybody else is going to say, oh no, we better be pure too. If the churches would do this, there's a lot that would be fixed in our churches. So you start with the pastor. He's held to a high standard. And then the church will fall right in line. Pastors must be held to the purity standard. No higher standard than anybody else. But if he's meeting that standard, then everybody else in the church will meet that standard. I think that the pastor has such a standard on him higher than any other person, any other job in the entire world. And if he's not meeting that standard, then he needs to be corrected. That's protecting the pastor. And in protecting the pastor, you're protecting the church. So that's number one. I just went way too long on that point, but let's keep going. Next, I want to show you how not just protecting the pastor, but picking the pastor. He moves on to verse 22, because I think if you'll protect the pastor like you should, which is protecting him from bad accusations and protecting him from sin, you're protecting the pastor from sin by correcting the pastor. 
And now he goes into picking the pastor in verse 22. If we would protect the pastor like we should, a lot of things in church would be fixed. If you'd pick the right man, a lot of things would be fixed. Look what it says in verse 22. Lay hands suddenly on no man. Lay hands would be ordained. Choose. Pick. Uh, your your uh, pulpit committee comes in and says, we got a guy that we're going to bring in to be the next pastor. Don't pick him too quickly. Don't, don't jump to conclusions. Don't look at him and say, that's our man. That's what he's saying here. Don't lay hands on. Suddenly, take your time when choosing your pastor. That's what it's saying. There's a lot of trouble could be avoided in churches if they took their time to pick the right man. If you check, if you investigate, if you take him to 1 Timothy and you check the, the qualifications in chapter 3 and the responsibilities of, of chapter 4, if, if you check their, their, their giftedness, if you check their call, if you even check their likability, you're going to look through every area of their life. I mean, this man is going to lead your church and lead you spiritually for the rest of your life. You better take your time in picking the pastor. Don't do it too quick. Don't, don't, don't pick a guy. It's like marriage. I shouldn't go here. You don't marry somebody after the first date. If you did and you say it works for me, that's the exception, not the rule. Because when you go on a first date, and I haven't been on a first date since I was 16 years old. But I know how it works. I talk to my kids about it. Isaiah, some girl on your first date, you know what she's going to do? She's going to put on her makeup. She's going to act the very best that she can. You're going to think she's the greatest thing in the world. Don't marry her after the first date. Wait a while. See the real thing? <laughs> Same thing for Gracie Bell. The guy's going to pay. He's going to open the door. You know, it's going to be, everything's going to be great. Just wait a while and see if the real deal comes out. That's what it's saying here. You don't pick a pastor after the first sermon that he preaches. You know why? He's going to come into the church and he's got one sermon that he thinks is the best sermon he's ever preached. He brings it in and everybody says, Amen, that's our man. Don't do it too quick. Don't lay hands on him too fast. This guy's going to lead your soul. Like I tell my kids, the person you're going to choose to marry, you're going to be with her for the rest of your life. Take your time. Church, I know you've got a pastor. He's the best thing you've ever had. But you take your time choosing the pastor. It may take a long time. So that, it says, you won't be a partaker of his sins. You see that? If you lay hands on a man too quick, if you pick him too, too, too soon, and he falls into sin, those who choose him those who lay hands on him, and that laying on of hands is almost a, a, a connection. You ordain them, you choose them, you, you pick them, and they fall into sin, and you've not done your due diligence to, to check them. Are they qualified? Do they meet the responsibilities? Are they who they say they are? And if you choose them too quickly, the church does, and they fall into sin, the church shares in their sin. You say, how does that work? If a pastor falls into sin, does it not fall back and look terrible on the church too? So if you choose a pastor who in six months is going to do something outrageous, it looks so bad on you because you're the ones who laid hands on him way too fast. A lot of churches have been ruined because they 
chose the pastor way, way, way too fast. He's telling us here, take your time. Be careful. Take it serious. So how do you choose a pastor? Look at verses 24 and 25. I'll come back to, to verse 23. That's an awesome verse. He tells Timothy to drink some wine. It's a great verse. Look at verse 24 and 25. I'm not skipping it. I'm coming back. He says, here's how you choose. Some men, just get this. He gives us four types of men. Some men, their sins are open beforehand, going before to judgment. So he says here, some are clearly unfit to be the pastor. It's going to be obvious from the get-go. You'll get their resume. They'll come into the church. And you look at them. And their reputation follows them in that they're in some kind of sin. Maybe it's a woman who sent her resume to you. And you can take that resume and just throw it in the garbage. Unfit. Clearly unfit. Easy decision. This person is not fit to be a pastor. And everybody knows it. Their sins follow them. So take that one, put it in the trash. Clearly unfit. Are they a drunk? Unfit. Are they an adulterer? Unfit. Have they been married five or six times? Clearly unfit. So that's category number one. Easy there, right? There's some you can just throw in the garbage. Next, and some men, it follows after. Some aren't, this is, some are unclearly unfit. I'm going to give you four categories. Clearly unfit was number one. Unclearly unfit, number two. In that they, again, back to the first date rule, they come in and look real good to start. But later on, their sins follow with them. Do you see that? And some men, they follow after. They come later. They look good. They look the part. They say the right things. But later on, if you don't fully examine them and their character, and, and really you're going to look into everything about them, a full background check. Later on, everything about them could come out and they could be seen to be unfit later on. Don't judge a man on first impressions. So if you fail to examine a month months later, you got a pastor who's six months in and he's fooled you the whole time and all, all of a sudden the church is in trouble. He is unclearly unfit. It's not very open to see. You have to examine. The next one, verse 25, he says, likewise. He says, the, the third category, some are clearly fit. He says, likewise, also the good works of some are manifest beforehand. Some guys you get and it's easy. You know they are. It was like Charles Spurgeon at 18 years old when he went to the Metropolitan Tabernacle and he walked in and everybody looked at him and said, that's the man for the job. It is clear as a bell. He's going to be our pastor for the next 40 years. As clear as it can be. He's qualified. He's responsible. He has his family in order. Everything is clear. This guy is great. From the start, he looks great. You know him. You trust him. This guy's good. But then he says, and then there's others who are unclearly fit. That at first glance you look at them and say, no, that ain't our guy. And you could easily trash them. Throw them to the side. I don't like it. But you dig deeper and he's just as good a guy as the first guy. Look what it says. And there are otherwise that cannot be hid. You have to dig a little. He could have turned out to be a great fit. He don't look great at first glance, but he, 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 he could be wonderful. Took some time. The point is, you say, how do you discern those four categories? Back to the main point. 
Don't you, I'll say it this way, no ordination without examination. That's what it's saying. You you want to check all these categories. You don't want to ordain the wrong man or choose the wrong man, but you don't want to also miss out on the right man. That's what that last category is. He could be a a great guy, but you missed out on him because you, you judged him on first impressions, so you really don't want to miss out on the right man or pick the wrong man. So you need to do a thorough examination of the man so the church picks the right pastor. So check. Churches won't always get this 100% right, but it would save a lot of trouble on churches if they would just pick the right pastor. You didn't even know this was in the Bible, did you? Get a pulpit committee together and say, here's how we do it. He's given us all things pertaining to life and to godliness and showing us how to do church, even picking a pastor. And lastly, number three, the awesome verse that everybody's been waiting for. How's Josh going to handle this one? He says at the end of verse 22, which connects into verse 23, he says, lay hands suddenly on no man and don't be a partaker of his sins. And then he gives a command here. Keep thyself pure. So we have paying the pastor, protecting the pastor, picking the pastor, and now the purity of the pastor. Keep yourself pure. And then he goes on, drink no longer water. That use a little wine for thy stomach's sake and thine often infirmities. You say, well, that seems out of point. That seems out of place. What's he bring that up for? Right in the middle of this, all this about pastors, and he says, drink, keep yourself pure and, and drink a little wine with your water. What, what's that all about? I think this is the main point. I think, I think this verse really ties it all together. I, I think it's, it's important. God wants, get this, pure men. Uh, God desires the church to be pure. I can give you all kinds of things. He says that the church should be spotless, blameless, without blemish. He wants his bride to be wearing white when he returns. He wants a pure bride. So he's told the pastor, if the the church will be pure, the pastor must be pure. So he corrected the impure men. We've seen that. Choose pure men. And now he commands them, keep yourself pure. It's key. If I had pastors here tonight, and I was at a pastor's conference, I'd say, pastors, keep yourself pure. The church needs your purity. There's no other pastors here. Johnny, Brandon preaches, you guys keep yourself pure for the church. Old Joshy. (laughs) Every single day I need to remind myself, the church needs, yes, my leadership, Yes, my preaching. Yes, my love and my care. But I think it needs my purity more than anything else. My family needs my purity. That they see what I watch, they see what I listen to, they see what I I say. They need my purity. They need to know that at home, dad is the same thing at home as he is behind the pulpit. My family needs my purity. The church needs my purity. He said that in chapter 4, I give you a whole sermon on how to be a good pastor. And my two points were, preach faithfully and live godly, which is purity. He's getting that point over and over and over. The church needs your purity, Timothy. And then he adds, get this, it goes with it. Verse 22, keep yourself pure. And in verse 22, he says, okay, I want to tie this in. But Timothy, and I think this is kind of a, a parenthetical statement. If, you, if you're writing a text message 
and you want to, and you're, it's a long text message and, and you kind of get off on a rant. You put something in a, in a parenthesis and say, oh yeah, how about this? And that's what he's saying here. Keep yourself pure. And then he says, so drink no longer water, but use a little wine for your stomach and for your infirmities, your sicknesses. You say, why does he say that? What is that about? Timothy took purity so serious. He wanted to be so blameless that in chapter 3, and you guys, we, we studied this under qualifications, that it said, not, verse 3, given to wine. You see that in verse 3 of chapter chapter 3? Not given to wine. A qualification of a pastor is that he's not given to wine. So he says here that Timothy took this so serious, these qualifications and this call to purity or a command to purity, that Timothy was drinking only water. That's all he was drinking. And the water that he was drinking was not Aquafina and was not Dasani. The water that he was drinking was dirty water. We, you need to know this. The wine is all over the Bible. People ask me that question all the time. What about the wine in the Bible? Jesus turned water into wine. Do you understand that the water that they drank was nasty? And they would put alcohol in it to purify the water so that it wouldn't make them sick and turn their stomach. They had it almost like jelly. And they would put a little bit in their water, stir it up, and it would purify the water. People think that they were drinking the same thing that people drink today. Not in, nothing like it. And if you put a little bit too much of that, almost like jelly, if you put a little too much in it, more than you should, you could get drunk off of it. So when they drank like this and, and they put just a little bit in it, stir it up, purify that water so that it wouldn't hurt their stomach, so that any kind of germs or, or something in there would, would go away and they could drink it and not get sick. And Timothy took, get this, he took the purity and the qualification so serious that he was drinking the water without any wine in it. And it was making him sick as a dog. I tell you, if you go down to some countries, you don't drink the water. You'll end up with, my Uncle Mark used to call it Montezuma's Revenge. <laughs> It'll tear your stomach up. You'll be sick. So Timothy took the purity so serious that he'd sit down to eat and everybody else would put a little bit of wine in their water and they'd drink it and everybody was okay. Timothy would drink the water. It's dirty, nasty. Uh, I mean, who knows what was in it in the desert? I mean, they didn't have anything way to clean the water. And he'd drink it and for the next hour, he'd be throwing up. They said, what are you doing, Timothy? He said, the qualifications are, I shouldn't be drinking wine. I don't want anybody to think that I'm a drunk. So I will risk getting sick as a dog to be pure for my church. That's how serious he took it. Willing to get sick so that people wouldn't think he was in sin. Wow. Timothy's serious about this. Not even a, a drop of wine. You got pastors today in the church, I said it, the, the church today is so worldly. The pastors behind the pulpit are not just, 
want to drink so that they can reach the world. Timothy said, I won't even put a drop in. I'd rather be throwing up than for people to think that I'm a drunk. So Paul says, Timothy, don't take this too far. You ain't going to get drunk off a drop. Put it in there. Stir it up. Purify it. So that you don't have any more problems with your stomach or sickness. Timothy, don't be a legalist about it. Don't go too far. A little, a little drop in there is, is just purifying it. Taking care of it. You need to do this, Timothy. He took it so serious that Paul had to even bring him down a little bit and say, it's okay. That's fine. Put a little bit in there. Timothy, again, willing to risk his health to remain pure so that nobody would say he was drunk, but all because he wanted to be what God had called him to be. He took purity so serious. Timothy was so unlike a lot of the worldly, carnal pastors in our pulpits today. Timothy was guarding his character because he knew that if he lost his character, he would lose everything. You know if a pastor loses his character, he loses everything but his salvation? I can't lose my salvation, but I can lose a lot of other things. So Timothy said, I'm, I'm going to be pure. And it's not just pastors today, it's Christians today who don't care about purity. And I think it's most pastors don't care about purity. If pastors cared about purity, the people in the pews would care about purity. We've got to be different in the world. We've got to be spotless and blameless and without blemish. We've got to be a spotless and pure bride for our Christ. We don't want to be, we don't want to be stained by the world. I've said it before, but we have prostituted the bride of Christ so that we can reach the world. Trying to sell the bride of Christ like a prostitute to the world so the world will come in and love the church. The purer we are, the better we are, and the more we'll reach the world. We don't have to adulterize or prostitute the church. Christians today scream liberty, that I'm free to do whatever I want to do. And they protest anytime you preach a sermon on purity. I get it. I, I'll probably get somebody messaging me this week about it. You're being a legalist. You're, you're, you're trying to walk the line too much. I'd rather be erring on the side of purity than on the side of worldliness. They say you got to be like the world, uh, impure, to reach the world. I say the early church turned the world upside down without becoming like the world. Pastors today need to restrain themselves. There's not a lot of that. Pastors today need to discipline themselves. Pastors today need to refuse to exercise their freedom so that they can be pure. Pastors today need to be different. Pastors today need to be pure. Pastors today need to stand out. And I think a pastor that is pure will encourage and motivate a church that is pure. And a pure church is a powerful church. Because that's what God wants. I can take you back to Deuteronomy again. A pure people. A people not like everybody else. That's what he's after. So the pastor must lead the way in purity. So back to my question and I'll close. What's the biggest problem facing the church? I think it's the same today as it was back then. I think Timothy had a leadership crisis, and I think the church today has a leadership crisis. 
And I think if we could fix this, if the church can find them a godly, pure, biblical pastor, and if the church will follow his lead and his example and his teaching, then the church can fix the biggest problem that they face. A whole lot could be fixed if you could just find the pastor that lines up with what the Word of God says. And if you do that, again, let me, let me give you the way to do that. You start with the church will find, and I, th- I think you could take 1 Timothy and, and, and take it to the mission field and, and teach them how to, how to start, how to start and, to, and to have a church, build it by the book. If you were to take me and throw me into a, a new church, and it was a mess, First thing I would do on Sunday night, I would preach the gospel every Sunday on Sunday morning, and I would preach First Timothy on Sunday night. Here's how we build the church. And I would say, if you can find you a godly pastor, a biblical pastor, a, a pure pastor, a, a God-fearing pastor, and you can put him behind the pulpit as the shepherd of the flock, and if you'll follow him, Amen. and if you'll... Uh, let him lead and, and, and be the example and to teach. Then you'll fix the biggest problem you have in your church. And you won't be a perfect church by any stretch of the imagination. He won't be a perfect pastor because there are none. Amen. You won't be a perfect congregation because there are none. But I'll tell you what you will be. You'll be faithful. You'll be a faithful man. And you'll have a faithful church. And that's all we can really ask for. Amen. This is how to set the pastor straight. And I ask you tonight, just as serious as I can be, to pray for me. This is a responsibility that falls on my shoulders that I can't possibly carry. I've read these passages on the pastor, the elders. And every chapter, I've compared it to, and I've heard sermons on this, squatting in the weight room. I go in there even now at my age and I'll squat, put a bar on my shoulders, and I'll tell Zach, the guy who lives with me, I'll say, put a, let's put a plate on there, 45 pounds on each side. We'll put a plate on each side, and I'm 41 years old, and I can rip that thing out. I'll rack it back and I'll say, let's put another plate on there. 45, 45. 41 years old, I can rip out 225. We get done, I say, Zach, let's put another plate on there. 315. 41 years old, I can still rip that out. Bragging a little bit, patting myself on the back. Let's put another plate on there, Zach. 405 getting a little heavy I can't I, I, I can still hold it might do one might need the racks around me so that I won't fall down a couple spots 405 is a lot of weight on your shoulders I can still do a couple but after 405 you find these little two and a half laying around you start putting those on there <laughs> and, and that weight's starting to get where I can't handle it anymore my legs start shaking and I'm going to fall under the weight and that's how I felt as I've read 1 Timothy. First chapter, I'm like, all right, now that's not terrible. <laughs> responsibilities. Second chapter, responsibilities. 
Third chapter, qualifications. Fourth chapter, all of it's pastors and it's all falling on my shoulders. And then you get to chapter five and it's oh my, oh my goodness, we're five, six plates falling on my shoulder and I'm starting to shake and I, I can't hold it anymore. It's too much weight for me. And I find myself in my office with tears in my eyes saying, I can't do this. There's no way. It's too much. And all I can say is, God, help me to be the man you've called me to be. I need God's help because I'm a weak man. And I need my congregation's help because I'm a weak man. This is a lot. And I know that I'm not worthy of it. And I'm not capable to do it without my Savior's help. Without my church's help. That's why I said this morning the sermon was so, maybe, I, I, you know, I walked, I walked out of the church and said I didn't do it justice. I said, God, I, I, could have, I should have done better. But I kept reminding myself when I fail and I fall, he's always there to pick me up. Because I am so weak and he is so strong. And when I fail as a pastor, and I will. And I start to shake and I can't handle it. I will remind myself just how weak I am. And just how strong he is. Because where he fails, where I fail, he never will. So pray for me that I will be the pastor that God has called me to be. And I'm thankful and privileged to be your pastor. Thank you for being here tonight. Thank you for listening to a sermon on setting the pastor straight. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. I thank you that you really made it clear in your word what the church should be, what the pastor must be. And God, the more I study it, the more I fall under the weight of it. But I'm thankful I have my Savior to help me carry the load, and I'm thankful I have a church and men in this church, deacons who help me carry the load. I'm not alone. And I have two faithful men, Johnny and Brandon, that help me carry the load. And I thank you for that. It would be impossible if I tried to do it on my own. I'm too weak. I'm too feeble. I'm too prone to wonder. So thank you, God, for people here that you have placed in this church to help me. And God, I pray that you'd help me to be faithful. I used to pray, God, that you would help me finish my race and my life with a bang that I would run across the finish line like a sprinter just as fast as I started but now I pray it's different God that you just help me to finish without any terrible sin in my life without any reputation ruining character ruining sin help me to be faithful because my faith will fail and I thank you God it's kind of been the theme of my week with this passage is that where I'm weak you are so very strong and I thank you for our church for such a faithful church and I pray God that we will build this church by the book 
And I believe if we do that, that you'll bless it. And that's all that we want is your blessing on our church. And we ask and pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.